0: Why would we evolve a care and concern for weaker species that have no snail primary benefit to us?
1: I mean, I know the they, French eat, eat snails, but I don't know if they eat snail darters. I just I don't know if there's a snail darter soup about or anything like that. Yeah, okay, that's what we talked uh, about last week. Don't, that is, don't diss snails. That I like w- snails. Okay, I'm applying C.S. Lewis through with the butter. things that we talked about over the last couple of weeks. It's the same with Morality. <music>
0: hello and welcome to another Designed for Your Comfort episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. Uh, we both came from various evangelical Protestant backgrounds into the Catholic Church. Uh, we asked a lot of very odd questions along the way, so it's not like we went in completely blind. But uh, we are trying to share how we process some of these questions and some other questions that came up uh that maybe we didn't struggle with, but came up as part of the process. Specifically today, as we're talking about atheism, you know, a lot of the question is, you know, if my worldview as an evangelical Christian isn't true, does that mean there's no God? Or does that mean that there is, you know, a truth to be found in Christianity in some other form? So that's kind of a backdrop as to why I have a lot of interest in this conversation about atheism and the problem of meaning and worth and dignity and everything else. Ken Hensley, um, are you ready to go to the next level of this conversation?
1: I, I'm just pretending like I, I don't hear you. No, that, that's not going to work. So <laughs> that's just, I mean, it's like know, two weeks in a row. Plenty, you some... pretended not to hear me. Some jokes are funny. Some are just not funny at all. I like the ones that are not funny. I just like. I really like jokes that aren't funny. Okay. Okay. The series title here is um, "Wizard of Oz Apologetics." That's what we're talking about. And what I'm doing here is I'm uh, I'm elucidating the 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 approach that I often take um, in doing evangelism or doing apologetics with those who doubt or deny the existence of God, and that is rather than making a direct argument uh, for god's existence i am making an i make an indirect argument by challenging those who deny the existence of god to make sense of their lives to make sense of their world of their lives in terms of what they say is true so we've been working through some of these issues all right and today we're going to another one that is the issue of, of meaning but i want to begin with cs lewis cs lewis made an interesting argument once from desire which is similar to what we're doing, but just from using a different word. um, Lewis argued that the desire that we have for things that cannot be uh, satisfied by nature is evidence that we are more than the mere products of nature, that we are made for something beyond nature. And of course, I believe that he was right. After all, a couple of illustrations or analogy, try to imagine how or why a fish, okay, born in water, living out its entire existence underwater try to imagine how a fish would somehow naturally evolve the strong desire to fly about in the sky like a bird or the other way around try to imagine how a bird who lives its entire existence you know flitting about from branch to branch would suddenly or or would somehow naturally evolve a strong desire to be swimming underneath the ocean you know you just can't imagine it well in the same way, it, it's hard for us to imagine how or why, uh, um, that is to even imagine how or why a human being from top to bottom, the atheist will say, a product of nature, from top to bottom, every aspect of our being, how or why we would evolve strong desires for things that cannot be satisfied by, by nature. Uh, for instance, the desire to live forever. Um, the desire for God to exist the desire for perfect love, the desire for our lives to have transcendent meaning—how would we, by natural processes, evolve desires for things that don't exist in nature? Yeah, and even to get back that, to um, that,
0: your your questions about uh, human dignity and human value that we've been discussing in previous episodes mm-hmm. and human rights—how would we evolve the desire to care for our weakest members if, as a species? That is detrimental to, you know, the survival of our species. So how would we evolve? What what would be the purpose of us evolving um, a deep care and concern for um, people who are disabled or those stricken by poverty or those who are, uh, you know, have Mm -hmm. lose their livelihoods or homes or anything else in a hurricane or an earthquake? How would we how would we evolve something like that?
1: Yeah, we naturally evolve desires that contradict the program of nature, which is red and true, uh, tooth and claw, and where one where the stronger species are exterminating the weaker. Yeah, that that's something we talked about a lot last week. But actually, over, over the last few weeks, we've discussed some of these, not using the word desire, but using the word belief. Um, we've, dis, we, we've discussed a number of these. That is, things that we seem to desire, or things that we humans seem to believe in, um, that cannot be accounted for on the premise that we are merely and entirely the products of natural processes. For instance, the desire and the belief we have that human beings would possess inherent, high, and equal value and dignity, equal worth and dignity. Sure, this would be true if God exists, and if we have all been created in the image and likeness of God, then something like this could at least be true. It could be true, God could plan for it to be true. But, but if we are nothing more than the accidental pro, uh, products of natural processes, then we don't have high value. And why would we have equal? Why would we say that we have equal value? You know, some people are obviously way more valuable than others. It's just not natural. Um, in that case, as atheist philosopher James Rachels writes, the traditional supports for the idea of human dignity are gone. That is belief in God and our creation in the image of God he writes, they have not survived the colossal shift of perspective brought about by Darwin's theory. There is no ground in the atheist worldview. There's no grounding for some idea that human beings have high value and equal value, just none. And and, and so how would this desire evolve naturally? How would this belief evolve naturally and by by natural processes? It just doesn't make sense. You know, that's C.S. Lewis's argument.
0: Yeah, and and uh, beyond that, I mean, just to add just one quick, um, mm-hmm. I guess, wrinkle to it would be, why would we evolve a desire to protect animal rights? Right? I mean, if <laughs> you know, that add that to the mix, like, why would we care about uh, creating animal shelters? Why would we care about uh, caring for other species? Now, it'd be different if we're talking about species that we could raise for food, but cats, dogs. Things like that. I mean, hamsters. We, why would we evolve a care for for s- their rights garters. and protections, and say it should be it should be it should be against the law to hurt those, right? And yet, yeah, um, there they, are plenty of atheists who you know join with us in saying, you know, we say we shouldn't abuse God's creation. They say you shouldn't hurt this animal because they're equal to humans. But either way, either way, why would we evolve a care and concern for weaker species? <laughs> that have no snail primary benefit to us. I mean, I know the Maybe French eat
1: snails, but I don't know if they eat snail darters. I just I don't know if there's a snail darter soup about or anything like that. Yeah, okay, that's what we talked uh, about last week. Don't, that is, don't diss snails. That I is, like snails. Okay, I'm applying C.S. Lewis through with the butter. things that we talked about over the last couple of weeks. It's the same with morality. I mean, atheists readily admit all the time that given their worldview— right and wrong as moral categories, not just as practical categories like traffic laws or something, but as moral categories have no objective existence. Again, morality, philosopher Michael Roos writes, is just an aid to survival and reproduction, <clears throat> an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process. It has no existence or being beyond this, and any deeper meaning is illusory. It's an illusion. And so again, if you and I, In every aspect of our beings, as I say from top to bottom, if we are products of nature, why would we evolve the strong desire and belief in something that doesn't exist in nature? That is objective morality, moral law, moral categories, ideas like guilt, innocence, good, evil. And then the same with human rights. You talk about animal rights, but uh, we pushed it further last week. I don't think atheism can even account for, an atheist worldview can even account for human rights. In the Declaration of Independence, you know, Thomas Jefferson spoke of our unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as being founded, grounded in God. We've been endowed, he said, with these rights by our creator. But if there's no God... Where would such rights come from? You and I talked about this last week. There's nowhere, there's nowhere for them to come from. And, and so again, how would we naturally evolve this belief in the unalienable human rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness when they don't even exist if there's no God in a natural world? So again, we've gone through a number of topics. Basically, the question is, how do you naturally evolve something That doesn't exist in nature? (laughs) How do you naturally evolve something that doesn't exist in nature? And and then to today's topic, and that is we're gonna talk about meaning today, the desire that we possess in our lives or for our lives to have meaning and purpose, and to have a meaning and purpose that transcends the few years that we are allotted in this world. This is something that we deeply desire. This is something most of us live as though we believed in it, as though it were true. But why, again, why would we evolve such a desire in a universe in which, as atheist Richard Dawkins has told us, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. How in the world would we evolve it? let, Let me put it this way for you, Matt, because I think this is kind of strikes at it from a different angle. Why would you and I not be entirely one with nature and entirely satisfied within nature if we were nothing but the mere products of nature? Okay? I mean, think about it like that. You you think about the great literature of the world, poetry, novels, film, so much of it is about man's feeling of alienation from from the world, of, of how strange we human beings feel in this world as though we're somehow not fit for this world or we, somehow we've come from some other place. But, but if we were the products of nature, like an apple hanging on a tree or an orange or a lemon, if you and I were from top to bottom the product of nature, how could we not feel entirely one with nature? And how could we ever not feel entirely satisfied by nature? Like, like a fish is entirely satisfied with water, a bird is entirely satisfied with the air, How could we not be entirely one?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, again, there's only so much that we can understand about what's going on in the brain or mind, such as it is, of animals um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, lesser life forms, quote unquote. I mean, I've got a dog. It's an extraordinarily smart dog. You're a
1: speciesist.
0: I'm a speciesist. Yes, I am. Um, I uh, I don't let my dog drive. I'm a speciesist. But... The, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. my dog is very smart and it thinks, and it understands some English, but I don't think, I mean, maybe it does, maybe I'm not giving my dog enough credit, but I don't think it lies awake at night thinking, I wish I understood Camus. Like, I don't think that my dog does this, right? It's satisfied uh, with the the words that it knows that I say, because that's intrinsic to our relationship, which is intrinsic to its survival. You know, obey me or run into the street and get killed. You know, these are, these are things that, you know, my dog... Thinks about and acts upon, but it does not. It's not getting ready to paint the next Sistine Chapel.
1: Yeah, and no one on the negative side. No one has ever looked at animals and suggested that they they seem to not be one with nature. They seem to be not satisfied with the natural world. They want they, more. They They're just looking for satisfied. more.
0: It's looking for meaning. By the way, if I ever if I ever
1: had a Tesla, if I ever had a Tesla, I might let my dog drive.
0: Oh, that's because it's self driving, though.
1: Yeah, self-driving.
0: So your dog's not driving at all.
1: So we'll explain that. Okay, we're talking about meaning. Okay, we're talking about meaning, and I want to, I want to spend a little bit of time confirming the fact that atheists themselves admit readily and continually that within their worldview, one of the main implications is that the universe has no ultimate meaning and purpose so i'm not putting words in their mouths we're not putting words in their mouths we're simply allowing them to speak for themselves and i want to begin with friedrich Nietzsche in his parable of the madman which is really something to read nietzsche is considered to be the father he's referred to often as the father of modern atheism well in this parable he faced squarely the implications of a world in which god has been exterminated in which god has been eliminated he delivers the bad news, which I believe is logically inescapable, that is, given the worldview. That is, a world without God, a world in which everything that exists is the result of blind material forces operating according to strict laws of physics and chemistry, is a world without objective meaning and purpose. Listen to this section from the parable of the madman, or his, his work, The Madman. Nietzsche writes, have you not heard of the madman who lit a lantern in the morning, in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I am looking for God, I am looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there, he excited considerable laughter. Why, did he get lost, said one? Did he lose his way like a child, said another? Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed, The madman sprang into their midst, and he pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried? I shall tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But what did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now, away from all sides? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there an up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming on all the time? Wow, what an amazing image that he paints here of the madman leaping into the crowd and piercing them with his eyes and saying, you and I, we have killed God. And yet, what, what are the implications has it not become colder? Are we not straying through an infinite nothingness? I mean, he just piles it up. I mean, amazing yeah, it reminds writing. me of that,
0: that scene from What About Bob, where Bob is, uh, you know, staying at the house of Richard Dreyfus's mm-hmm. family there in Lake Winnipesaukee. Mm-hmm. And he's lying in one bed, and over across the room is uh, Dreyfus's son, uh, Siggy, named for Sigmund Freud, mm-hmm. staring at the ceiling. And he's like, you ever stop to think that? Uh, about the inescapability of death. We're all going to die. And it's just it. Kapoof. Nothing. And the whole time Bob's just like pulling the covers up farther over his face, you know, just staring at the ceiling thinking about how it's all going to be over at some point. You know I mean? That's what you're left with. Yeah. You're left. For, you're what about Bob? You're Bob mm. staring at the ceiling thinking that it's all going to end. You know I mean? What do you do? What's... Do you buy no wonder,
1: a boat? No, no wonder... Yeah, no wonder he was calling him on the phone and saying, I need, I need, I need, I need. No wonder, right? No. Maybe steps well, into okay. the void. Yeah. Well, Nietzsche says it, and he describes it beautifully, but the ultimate meaninglessness of a world without God. This is something that atheists, scientists, and philosophers readily admit all the time. We've already referred a number of times to Richard Dawkins, biologist, author of the book, The God Delusion, and his description of our universe as a universe in which there is no design and therefore no purpose. Okay. There's no design, no purpose. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, after all, if the entire material universe was not designed, if the entire material universe has no purpose, then surely you and I just little, you know, minuscule little, little, you know, you know, bubbles coming up from this And this material universe we also were not designed and we also have no purpose Um, by the way it's no wonder to me then that so many people young people today raised essentially within our secular school system the the attitudes that come from many many different angles raised to believe that they're really little more than extremely complicated biological machines it's no wonder that many struggle with finding meaning in life finding purpose in life when does the message of this communicated them.
0: It's a, a message that is very, very strange because, you know, I grew up in the public school system in the eighties and nineties and it was like this, but not as much as it is now where, you know, essentially you're a bunch of chemicals in a complicated machine, you know, bouncing through the universe yeah. of infinity, but also you're the most special unicorn who ever lived and self-esteem <laughs> is uh is to be prioritized. And it's, it's like, well, how am I supposed to have self-esteem if I'm just, uh, rearranged atoms and I'm 99% to... space. I don't know
1: what you're hitting on here. Is this more of the same tension or call it con- contradiction? Yeah. It, uh, you know, on the one hand, you're the forward edge of the sludge of evolution. That's and it. Reli- religion is religion is to be mocked. On the other hand, you need to get 17 gold stars every time you you know lift a finger off the pillow, you know, and stand up in the in the morning. So it's just one of those tensions, one of those contradictions. But let me give you a couple more examples. Uh, late Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould. This is how he responded to the question, "Why are we here?" We are here because one odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We are here because the earth never froze entirely during the ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. And you know what? I, I read that, Matt, and I'm left wondering, um, how, does Dr., or how did Dr. Gould, a paleontologist, someone who studies bones, I mean, how did he know? that there's no higher answer. How did he know that? I'm wondering, did he find a bone somewhere you know, that, that ha- with the inscription on it, um, this was not created by God or this was not designed by God? How does he know? I mean, science is the study of the material world. That's what science is. But when scientists like Gould, when they conclude from their examination of the material world, that nothing exists but the material world, that there's no purpose and meaning in life, that there is no God, they're not speaking as scientists anymore. They've crossed over and they're speaking as philosophers and often really lousy philosophers. Or I like to put it this way, they're, they're slipping in a philosophical perspective on the coattails of their um, scientific credentials. You know? and
0: essentially, they're coming to a, a conclusion about the supernatural based on only evidence from the natural world. And,
1: right. It,
0: well, there are a whole bunch of different ways to, to to address that question, but science can either prove nor disprove God, and yet a person like this thinks that it has disproven God, and it's like saying, you know, a marine biologist can't prove or disprove, uh, you know, astrological or I'm um, sorry, astronomical questions, right? Because it's not their field. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. um, we kind of presume that people in the field of science are competent to pronounce in the field of philosophy when, in fact, they may be competent to pronounce in the field of their own form of the philosophy. But in philosophy in general, there are better people to listen to.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, I view it as a kind of sleight of hand, and I don't mean that in every case it's conscious. I think it's unconscious in most cases. And I don't know about Google. These are not stupid people. Gould these are it, very
0: smart people. Yeah.
1: When Gould is an expert in paleontology, he's an expert in bones. This is his area of study. But when he says that if we look for any higher answer to why we're here, there is none. There is no higher answer. He has moved out of paleontology into philosophy, and yet he, he didn't tell us that. He didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm just expressing a, an opinion, or I'm moving into philosophy. You know, and, and so there's kind of a sleight of hand, because someone who looks at his expertise in paleontology, says, this guy's a brilliant scientist. Then when he says, there is no answer, excuse me, my ear thing fell right out of my head.
0: It's your babble fish,
1: yeah, which could not yeah, have evolved purely,
0: purely by chance. No, of course not.
1: Yeah. Therefore, when, when when Gould slips from science into philosophy and he makes a statement, there is no there is no higher answer to why we're here. Um many people will just listen and go oh well, yeah this is also something that he knows this is something And he, that he has he done something that is of one
0: of the most difficult to do difficult things to do in any field of knowledge which is he has in his own mind proven a negative. Yeah which yes it's like very nearly impossible an... to prove a negative in any realm of knowledge.
1: That's right. That's right. Okay well when it comes to philosophers Um, We've looked at scientists Dawkins and Gould, but when it comes to philosophers, probably the most important of the early 20th century was Bertrand Russell. Um, Here's what he had to say about the meaning and purpose of life. Man is the product of of natural, I put that in brackets, man is the product of causes which had no provision for the end they were achieving. That is just blind natural causes. Man's origin, his growth, his hopes and fears his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collisions of atoms. No fire, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve the individual life beyond the grave. All the labor of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Okay. Teach this, um, you know, you, use this as bedtime reading for your children and your grandchildren. Um, and notice the sense of meaning and purpose <laughs> that this will give them in life. That, you know, the basic enthusiasm that they will have for living. I mean, Russell has just said it. Life has no meaning at all. I mean, he's gone way beyond science, too. Well, he's a philosopher. He's definitely in the realm of philosophy. Then when he tries to say that, you know, that even our beliefs are just the outcome of the accidental collisions of atoms, he's actually acting like a scientist there. But anyway, one more. Jean-Paul Sartre, an existentialist philosopher, French, an atheist. He expressed the ultimate meaninglessness of our existence when he wrote, and I quote, death is the final absurdity which befittingly finishes off what the final absurdity of birth began. Listen to that again. Death is the final absurdity, which befittingly finishes off what the final absurdity of birth began. Um, Here are some of the titles of his books. Nausea. um, Another one, No Exit. And another one, Being and Nothingness. Kind of makes sense.
0: So uh, I just want to, put in here that a lot of my friends who have uh, abandoned Christian belief and gone into the realm of agnosticism or, or atheism, usually it's, it's kind of armchair atheism. They're not necessarily reading Sartre and Russell, um, and Gould and, and some of the others that you've mentioned. Uh, essentially a lot of what they've steeped into is that they just don't care. They just want to do what seems to work best for them right now. And that's all good and well, but it doesn't address Mm -hmm. this question. Um, you know, they they may no. not have fully gone into the realm of a guy like Sartre who says, you know, it's all an absurdity, and why are we even trying? I don't know why Sartre felt like he had to even write this down. Like, what is the meaning of him even writing this down, <laughs> right? Um, but I think a lot of people that I know who are, have gone into this sort of realm of things, they don't—they're not thinking like this. They're just thinking, I want to do what's best— and feels best well, for me said, right now, but they're not—they're not following the logic of what the implications of that are um, as a worldview.
1: That's what we've run into in each of the subjects that we've dealt with over the last, you know, over the last weeks. It, 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 it's the same thing that because human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, they tend to naturally believe that human life has special value, high value, equal value. They Tend to naturally believe that right and wrong are real things; that moral, the morality is something that really exists. They naturally believe that human rights are, are are something real, and that people should have the unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they seem to, and they tend to naturally believe that life has meaning, and they want to live a, according to that. But what we're doing here is philosophical apologetics. We're just pointing out that what they say is true of the universe in which we live that is that there is no God, there is no purpose, there is no design, this entire universe is one gigantic mechanical accident, and we are just parts of that mechanical accident. Based on their worldview, they cannot account for, they cannot provide a metaphysical basis for these things that they believe. And and so they live in this tension. And I agree with you, most of it is is is. Uh, with most people, of course, it's it's not fully conscious. They haven't thought these implications all the way through, so they just kind of live in this tension where they just sort of believe in right and wrong. They believe in the value of human right. You know, they believe in meaning and purpose, sort of, and and then then they also believe there's no God, or, or they also think, well, you know, may, probably there is no God, and they just kind of like move move along, doing what they uh, like and doing what they desire, um, because they haven't thought through the implications. But let let's be honest about this and very clear. If you and I are nothing but the accidental products of a universe that is itself nothing but an accident of chemistry and physics, then Nietzsche, Dawkins, Gould, Russell, and Sartre are entirely correct. There is no meaning or purpose to human existence. And so now let's get into the responses that atheists will make to this problem of meaning when they do begin to think think about it. Uh, because. It's not like the question of meaning in life is an unimportant question or or a question that no one has has dealt with or that atheists haven't dealt with. In fact, atheist philosopher Albert Camus, another French existentialist philosopher, he certainly didn't believe that the question was one of small importance. And I I want to read to you a little section from something he wrote called The Myth of Sisyphus. In this, he wrote Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. I have never seen anyone die for the ontological argument. (laughs) We could go off on that. That's an interesting statement. Whether the earth or the sun revolve around one another is a matter of profound indifference. Because Who cares whether the sun goes around the earth or the earth goes around the sun? On the other hand, I see many people die because they judge that life is not worth living. I therefore conclude that the meaning of life is the most urgent of questions. So so, how do, so how, do those, how do people respond then who do not believe in God? How do they respond to the question of, of meaning? And we'll begin with the worst case. There are some, you know, he says many have died. You know, Camus says, I see many people die because they judge that life's not worth living. Some lose the will to live. Um, when Nietzsche's vision really begins to become concrete in their imagination and when the implications of atheism really begin to dawn on them and sink in. And they they find themselves, you know, maybe like, you know, what about Bob laying in his bed, staring up at the ceiling at night and thinking, it's all dust. I mean, it's nothing but dust. And you had the funny story of Bob. What came to my mind when I thought about this and I tried to think in a humorous way was a scene from Woody Allen's film, Annie Hall, which I'm sure you've seen, okay? Alvy Singer is the protagonist of the film. This is played by Woody Allen, okay? Anyway, there's a scene near the beginning when Alvy is a little boy, and it shows, it, it's really funny, it shows his family, they, they're they growing up, he's growing up in a little house that is immediately beneath the roller coaster at Coney Island. So they're sitting in their house, and roller coasters are just going right over the ceiling, you know, just sh- shaking their house all day long. Anyway, Alvy's mother takes him to a psychologist, and uh, it's a scene early on in the film, and it, it's very funny. She says to the psychologist sitting there with Alvy, she says, um he stopped doing everything I mean, he he doesn't want to do anything anymore it, it, it's something that he read and the psychologist looks at him and says so alvy why why are you so depressed why do you why is it you don't want to do anything and Albie says the universe is expanding and he says the universe is all that there is and if it keeps expanding it, it's going to break apart at some point he's like 9 or 10 years old in this scene okay and and uh, his mother you know breaks in. Albie? you know, what has the universe got to do with you? You know? And he says, she, she looks at the doctor, in fact, and she says, he stopped doing his homework. And then the doctor's looking all thoughtful is really good. And, um, Alvy says to, he stopped doing his homework. Alvy says, well, what's the point in doing your homework? And his mother just kind of goes nuts. And she says, Alvi, she goes, what does the universe have to do with you? The universe may be expanding, but you live in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is not expanding. <laughs> it's a total crack up. <laughs> you live in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is not expanding. But it, 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 it's an illustration of that, you know. When the idea really sunk into his mind, this material universe is expanding, and it's going to die a heat death, you know, a or, or, or cold death in the future. Um, he quit doing his homework. Well, but you'll be dead then anyway, atheists, Albie.
0: You'll be dead then anyway. Yeah, you know, I I can't help but think of another argument that Lewis makes in his book God and the Dock, where he says, For centuries and centuries, uh, we have known that the earth is small and the universe is very, very large. Why is it in the past couple of hundred years that has suddenly become an argument against the existence of God? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. yeah. We this is not yeah. like something that Thomas Aquinas didn't know. He's like, "Well, God is obviously real because the universe is not very big." You know, I mean, these are these are questions that have been engaged by people who believed in the supernatural for centuries, right? The universe has always been expanding, not just for Alvi, but for every great thinker that is taught in a Western classics class.
1: Yeah, you know, that's kind of a funny argument. It, it, it's like, so if I was twelve feet tall and instead of six, six, you know, that would mean that uh, that would mean that God more probably exists. And if I was twenty-four feet tall, then he gets a little more, you got more of an edge. And if I am like seventeen, so it's, it's a matter tall, of scale. And it funny, all comes down to it's scale. It's a funny argument. Yeah, it's a funny argument. Okay, well, while some atheists stop doing their homework and they throw themselves off bridges and whatnot, when, when the realization comes to them that um, that the vision of the madman. In, um, in Nietzsche is true. Um, most don't do that. You know, as you said, most people just sort of live their lives. Most attempt to resolve the tension by thinking along more optimistic lines. You know, they will say, or they, they will think something like this. Okay, so the in the grand scheme of things, life has no purpose. All right, all right. So the, the kind of transcendent meaning and purpose that would exist if God existed and if we had been created in the image of God for a life in heaven... Okay, so that kind of transcendent meaning doesn't exist, but surely this life includes some good things, in which I can find meaning and satisfaction, if if, if if only for a short time. And this is what I'll focus on, you know, rather than the reality that ultimately I've come from nowhere and I'm headed nowhere. Um, that's what most people do. I refer to this as the optimistic humanist response, and and this comes in a couple of varieties: the shallow cynical version of the optimistic humanist response, goes like this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Okay? And I thought about that song. What's that song where they say, if if this is all there is, or if that's all there is, then then let's strike up the band, you know? <laughs> There's mm-hmm. some song, some old song that says that. Like, you know, let's, let's or, go to a rock and roll concert and have fun.
0: In a less humorous way, uh, it's like my friends who are like, why would I bring a child into this? And uh, they never get married. They never have kids they don't do any of that stuff because they can't imagine um, the financial investment of taking care of someone else mm-hmm. and they just take care of mm-hmm. themselves until the end when they die alone right
1: yeah 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 Op- the That's optimistic
0: just, view I mean, doesn't I'm, actually work out all that yeah. well when it comes to its final fruition
1: Yeah. so, so it's so it's eat drink and be merry it's if, if this is all there is, let's strike up the band. Let's go to a rock concert. Let's eat good meals. Let's maybe not, you know, to, to, to weave in what you just said, let's maybe not have a family because that'll be a lot of work and all. Let's just focus on two incomes so we can go on lots of fine vacations and, uh, and whatnot. Okay, that's what we would, what I would refer to as the more shallow version of the optimistic humanist response. The more subtle version, the more nuanced version, and the, the more, the higher version, I would say, is the one that says... Well, let's live for today. Let's love the people that we have around us. Let's find happiness where we can. And as for ultimate meaning, well, let's just do our best to block that out of our minds because it'll only depress you. And this makes me think of Albert Camus um, because he worked on this idea a lot. He spoke about the absurdity of life and he worked a lot on the idea of meaning. Um, Camus... As as someone created in the image of God, I would say, he wanted, um, with all of his heart, he wanted to avoid the total nihilism of men like Nietzsche or, um, you know, or, or Russell, and he, he fought against it all of his life. But he could never really escape the nagging thought that the op- that, that the optimistic humanist response requires a constant e- evasion of reality. Okay, it requires you to kind of tear yourself into two pieces, because by saying as a philosopher on the one hand that life is ultimately meaningless, and then saying, but you know we can create meaning for ourselves in the short time that we have, um, Camus argued that we essentially are committing philosophical suicide in order to provide psychological comfort for ourselves in the present. Um, here's a short bit from an article on this subject about Camus. Camus has a critique of those who try to endure the meaninglessness of life by imposing meaning on it. While that can bring us comfort, those systems of meaning are themselves doomed to failure over the long run. The universe remains indifferent to us. Random events happen and we will again face meaninglessness. His his conclusion then was to simply say life is absurd and to find joy and relish in the absurdity of life. If we kill ourselves to solve the problem, we don't get anywhere because death is just as absurd as life. If we live, that's absurd as well. If we try to find happiness, that's absurd. The whole thing is absurd. Um, we may as well just sort of pursue the things that we can enjoy and um, you know, try to think about the fact or try to not think that often about the fact that in the end, it's all meaningless.
0: That is a chilling phrase. Um. The idea that if it, if it really does mean nothing and then we try and imbue it with meaning that we're uh, committing, as you say here, philosophical suicide uh, to provide psychological comfort in the president. It's the ideal. It's the ideological version of eat, drink and be merry, right? Uh, engage mm-hmm. in the bodily mm-hmm. pleasures is the shallow version. Trick yourself into <laughs> making meaning where there is no meaning is the drug of the mind. Uh, I guess you could say in this case, but either one of them is -hmm, just a coping mm -hmm. mechanism. If there really is no meaning, Um, it's a chilling thought. Yeah. Chilling thought. Yeah, it
1: is. It is. It is. It's chilling. Okay. So, so what does this have to do with evangelism or with apologetics? And so I summarize my, 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 my points again here. Um, with a question first is it natural then is it natural to believe that life has no ultimate meaning is this natural um well if there's no god and this universe is one gigantic accident then yes it would be entirely natural to believe that life has no ultimate meaning because in that case it wouldn't have any ultimate meaning on the other hand though that's the atheist worldview on the other hand if god exists And if God created you and I in his image and likeness for an eternity of happiness with him in heaven, if that is the truth of the world, if that's the truth of the world we live in, then life has alt-meaning, it has ultimate meaning, it has ultimate purpose, and everything we do, in fact, is imbued with meaning and purpose, everything that we do in this life. And it's very natural for us then to believe that life has meaning. It's natural for us to believe that, and and, and not simply the kind of meaning that we would create for ourselves to provide psychological comfort, what Camus talks about, as we make our way through an ultimately totally meaningless universe, but meaning and purpose that is real, meaning and purpose that is something for which we can live. That is, in stark kind of contrast, what the atheist worldview provides and what the Christian theistic worldview provides. And for some reason, this is the sort of meaning and purpose that we all seem to naturally desire. And so again, how in the world did we evolve by natural processes the desire for something that isn't true, something that that doesn't exist? Now, in my evangelism then, If atheism is true, I would say to my friend, who can argue with Nietzsche's madman? I mean, who can argue with it? When he says, are we not straying through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night and more night coming all the time? I mean, I mean, who can deny that this is the reality? So when I bring up this subject of meaning as I bring up the subject of human value? Morality that we discussed, human rights, unalienable rights. When I bring up this question of meaning, I'm banking on my belief that my friend will not want to accept the implications of what he says is true, of what he's saying is true of the universe in which we live. I'm, I'm banking on the belief that what is natural for him as God's creature is to believe that life has meaning and purpose and that that's what he wants. I'm banking on the belief That when he looks at his own life and the lives of those that he loves, he does not really believe, in fact, he doesn't believe, as Bertrand Russell put it, that all of their hopes and fears, I mean, think about your child. Children, grandchildren, I'm banking on the fact that he doesn't really believe that all of their hopes and fears as he looks at them, all of their loves and beliefs are but the outcome of the accidental collision of atoms. And I'm praying that, faced with the brutal logical implications of his atheism, he may become open to listening to the real rational arguments there are for God's existence and the truth of the Christian worldview, for a worldview that makes sense of his desire that there be meeting. And I I close with a, a, a paragraph from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that teaches me that whatever my atheist friend may say He has come, he or she has come to believe about the non-existence of God. He, she remains God's creation. The nature and the character of God is etched into his, her very being. And he, she cannot really escape wanting relationship with God, wanting life to have meaning and purpose. This is what the Catechism says. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. In other words, I'm not presenting by this argument today, I'm not presenting a proof for God's existence. What I'm doing is putting my finger on another point of tension that exists within the atheist life. And I'm basically asking the question, meaning, purpose, You want these things. You desire these things. You probably believe that they are real. How do you account for those? Because if what you say of the universe was true, they don't exist. Meaning doesn't exist. Purpose doesn't exist. It's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference forever and ever and ever.
0: Yeah, it's uh, an important question to ask. Uh, and it has extensions into every area of life. <clears throat> why Why have a funeral? Why mark the place where we buried a friend or a relative? Why do any of those things? If it has no meaning, why are we trying to assign meaning to it by building a memorial for someone who we believe was, uh, you know, really important to us? Well... Are they going to be important to the next round of people who are born after us? Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the point? What's the point of having that kind of um, regard for the dead if it means nothing? I mean, and that's just one particular area. I feel like I'm getting back to what about Bob here? You know, what if it's just, what if that's just the end? Yeah.
1: Makes me think of a passage in the book of Ecclesiastes where it says, where where it says, God has set eternity in our hearts. Um, that's that's sort of like the, the the propulsion. That's the fuel in our lives. Is that God has set eternity in our hearts, and so we live as though we believed in eternity, even when we don't believe in e- in eternity. And unless we really come to believe that there is no eternity, we really come to believe, then we may begin to live in a different way. And, and you know, in different ways, can go all kinds of variations. I think again of the Marquis de Sade, who said, "Nature has made man." Stronger than woman, and therefore we can do whatever we want with them, you know. Or or Hitler, who said, you know, the Aryan race is supreme race, and all other races ought to be exterminated. And let's get on with the project. And and then others who say, no, no, let's live and die for in defense of human rights, even though based on our worldview, um, a rat is a pig, is a dog is a boy. Yeah, this 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 tension appears basically everywhere in human experience, this tension. And uh, we're going to go on next week to uh, actually probe this at a deeper level. And so I am already very interested in where we're going to go next week.
0: I am too. I am too. Who knows? Maybe we'll get into some even darker questions from What About Bob? I don't know.
1: Or maybe, you know, we'll get into some of
0: Bob's lighter questions, his lighter questions like, Faye, is this corn hand shucked? Or... Do you have salt substitute Yeah, you know, maybe we'll get into some of those lighter questions but uh in the meantime i hope that you've learned something today uh i've learned something today. i learned something every time i talk to ken hensley um but i hope it's something good to ponder and these are real questions that people have this is this is the kind of stuff that causes people actual you know existential angst so uh if if you have questions related to this if you're someone who is going through this <laughs> kind of questioning in your own life Please do visit us at chnetwork.org. Uh, come say hello in our community as well, community.chnetwork.org. And if you're someone who has appreciated these now 71 episodes of On the Journey and want to make sure we're still able to do it, then uh, we'd love it if you stopped over at chnetwork.org slash donate and uh, maybe support the efforts of the Coming Home Network. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Ken, thanks again. We'll talk to you next week.
1: Thank you.